Welcome in, everyone. Welcome to the Buddhist Wisdom Podcast. Um, as you can tell, my guest is once again uh, Scott Snimi from A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. Uh, he's here for our part two, um, talking about the Dharma, healthy skepticism, practicing the path uh, as a modern practitioner in the Western world. So, yeah, welcome, Scott. Thanks for um, thanks for joining me again for the part two. Yeah, nice to see you again, Scott. Yeah, it's always good to see you. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I just thought we can kind of like pick up where we left off. And um, where did we leave off? <laughs> Two weeks ago or something. Yeah, something like that. Something. But yeah, I remember we were, we were starting to get into the discussion of, um, of you know, a skepticism or healthy skepticism, what the, what the practice of healthy skepticism is, how it relates to the Buddhist path. Um and um, so I thought we can kind of, you know, meander and share there a little bit more, if that sounds good to you. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. I mean, first off, uh, uh, how are you? How's it going? Like, like what's going on in your life? Oh, I'm, okay? I'm doing great. I just, I'm just finishing a, a draft of the book. There's a Skeptic's Path book that's going to come out at the end of the year. So um, I'm doing one last pass and sending off to my editor next week. And we just released this class too, the Skeptics Path, the first class. So it's exciting to finally start our educational programs. You know, that was the that was the main goal of Skeptics Path is to have an educational program and teach people to meditate. Um, in addition yeah. to the podcast, so I'm really excited about that. Me too. That's awesome. Yeah. So anyone out there, please check that out. Um, course just launched and the book will be out in the fall is that that's correct yeah the, the book will be out right now it's scheduled for december and the course is launching and it starts on march 5th and it's it's synchronous so there's one topic it's 12 weeks and there's one topic every week we talk about different topics of analytical meditation cool you know there's not a lot of courses on analytical meditation out there i'm guessing like you know I mean, i'm sure there's like there's there's various guided meditations and kind of like traditional Buddhist teachings at, at like a Buddhist center, but not a lot on kind of, I don't know, is that true? Have you seen any courses on analytical? No. And we've become, our, our site is actually one of the main places people go to find out about analytical meditation. Now it's, that was part of the whole reason I started Skeptic's Path was because the type of meditation you, you and I learned in our tradition, this um, Tibetan Nalanda tradition, uh, sure. Indo-Tibetan tradition, it's emphasizes so much analytical meditation, which is a meditation of, you know, where you actually um, quite, in, quite engage your mind with thoughts and critical thinking, um, emotions, stories. And so there weren't very many sources for that that weren't religious. There, there are good ones, obviously, in our tradition. There's lots of um, religious books on the Lam Rim and, and other types of analytical meditation. But yeah, it, there's almost a complete void of even that word, analytical meditation. And in scientific studies, too, I was actually trying to track down references for the book. And I talked to a few scientists, and they said, now there's basically a void in the scientific literature about analytical meditation, although specific types of analytical meditation like compassion or loving kindness meditation have been studied. But mm -hmm. the, the actual word analytical meditation and the broader type of meditation hasn't been studied. So any scientist listening out there, it's a big opportunity <laughs> to, to study the effects of it. Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, there's all these kind of um, studies being done on how meditation affects the brain. And but but I would imagine they're not studying analytical because like our, they're trying to study like parts of the brain when we're not when we're in other states besides thinking. Maybe that's why they're not studying it that much. 
Yeah, well, mind, mindfulness was number one, obviously. That one's been studied a lot and there, there are concrete benefits you know, in most studies, although there are a few places where mindfulness meditation can be harmful. Mm. Um, that they have shown with science and then compassion is kind of like number two, I think in terms of studying, um, loving kindness sometimes and, and variations. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I'm excited. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, just describing a little bit, I mean, we could start, maybe we could start there. Cause I think, you know, when, when, when I think of, I mean, skeptic, healthy skepticism in relation to a spiritual path is, I think, a big topic. So, we, I mean, I'm sure you know, we're going to get into it in, in its different facets together. But maybe we can just start there with analytical meditation. Because for me, you know, I don't know about you, but analytical meditation over the years, and maybe we can describe more what analytical meditation is. Like we can kind of let the audience know, because maybe some of the listeners mm-hmm. haven't done that much. Or for them, that's like more in that you can think while you meditate. Um, but, uh, but I know for me, it's really helped to form, um, healthy, a healthy relationship to skepticism because we're actually are questioning within analytical meditation. Yeah. Sometimes I tell people who don't know about it, that analytical meditation is like a story, you know, Mm -hmm. that it's, it's a story that you tell yourself in meditation. Someone can be telling you too, if they're guiding it, if you're listening to a guided meditation, but it's a story that evokes certain emotions. It, it evokes positive uh, transformational thoughts that bring out your best qualities. So it's quite precise. I think the definition of meditation, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, uh, isn't just sitting on a or something like that. It's actually focusing on virtue. It's focusing on thoughts that would bring about good in your good in your mind and good in the world. So, the stabilizing form of meditation, which sometimes is called mindfulness meditation, also is um, it, it it could be virtuous. It kind of it, it kind of depends what's in the background. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like you can go in. I often talk about like Darth Vader. You know, is meditating and the Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> almost yeah, yeah, whenever yeah. he's not killing people, he's meditating. So he's kind <laughs> of the the cartoon example that you can meditate for even for evil or something like that. Like you can meditate just to strengthen your concentration, um, yeah. to to work harder or even to like um, harm people. So when you combine, but you have to combine the two. You have the power of concentration because if you can't concentrate on something, then you know you won't do anything. You can't concentrate on yeah. work or a conversation or meditation. <clears throat> but then analytical meditation is the thing that can really steer your mind uh, in some direction like towards understanding impermanence, um, how precious our life is, uh, compassion, love, patience, generosity, uh, the interdependent nature of reality. So there's all these specific topics and Something I really noticed when I got first got asked to lead meditation, I asked my teachers what to do. And they said, always combine, you know, always combine some analytical meditation, some stabilizing meditation, also some aspirational meditation. Like in our, in our tradition, what we call guru devotion, guru yoga, which doesn't sound like it would be for uh, beginners or, or non-religious people, but to put that into non-religious terms, like aspiration, just an aspiration of uh, what are the, what are, who, who's worth admiring in life? Mm. What kind of people are worth admiring in life? What qualities are worth admiring? And to see an arrow that I can get there, you know, mm. all the, the scientific evidence and also the, the Buddhist tradition, you know, what we've seen from meditators shows that you can almost limitlessly um, strengthen your good qualities and that the the disturbing ones just fall by the wayside. You don't even have to actively fight them necessarily, but by 
because the the virtuous types of thoughts like you know love compassion patience um, non harming and so on that they're actually natural they're more intrinsic this is the good news yeah. from Buddhism right is that <laughs> you, it sees your inter, intrinsic nature as as good and if you dive under that in subtle forms of meditation like meditating on the mind it's almost like like swimming in a swimming pool of light or something <laughs> like you know all of a sudden you see wow this is what's underneath all that other stuff in my mind um and then you you know resurface and those the 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 disturbing types of thoughts and emotions are as you know are seen, are said to be uh, adventitious is the word they often use it's a kind yeah. of a weird obscure obscure name but um fleeting maybe is a yeah. better word that are are disturbing emotions even though they can overwhelm us um aren't as deep as the good ones so so yeah, that's, yeah. there's a lot to say about analytical meditation, but yeah, in general, it uses story, thought, and emotion to transform your mind. The other thing is I've found that people, I'm actually curious because you've led so much meditations, but I've found people can focus on analytical meditations much better because it's a changing object. It's, it's more like mm. listening to a podcast or what, even watching a TV show or something like that. And um, no one's ever stood up and got up and walked out of a one hour meditation <laughs> session. I've done, you know, many thousands of people. And uh, that's why I always tell people, it's like, no one's ever stood up and walked out before the hour was up. But almost everybody has <laughs> stood up and walked out on their own meditation session. You know, it gets pretty hard <laughs> even after five minutes sometimes. So I think analytical meditation is, uh, paradoxically, it can actually train your concentration um, maybe faster and better for a lot of, for a lot of people because we're we're used to thinking. Yeah. So if we can just engage those thoughts in a way that's constructive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I th I think I've noticed a, a lot of people. Um, if I'm working with someone who's 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 more newer to to Buddhist practice or, or meditation, often um, when I jump right into like awareness practices, those are quite difficult because awareness is something you know that's a quality of our mind that's not thinking. But it's a natural quality of the mind to, that we can be watchful. But it's not something we cultivate unless we meditate. Mm -hmm. And and just in the beginning, we're we're not going to have much of a relationship to that right away because we have to recognize it and then kind of reinforce that recognition through practice. So yeah, I've noticed actually a lot of people like loving you know forms of the you know the I would say the most popular form of loving kindness meditation, which is through um, phrases or you know repeating you know may, may I be happy, may I be happy, those kinds of things, because it's a type of analytical meditation, um, it, you know, very bare bones one, but it it it's something to grab onto, like you said, it's something it's it's a story to follow, it's a process to follow that is thought based, which we're we're also used to, you know, yeah, 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 and. Yeah, I mean, I was I was thinking while, while you were talking too. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't doing analytical meditation, but I was thinking uh, about um, uh, this sense of, uh, you know, I have gotten this question about, you know, we could start our, our journey uh, talking about healthy skepticism in relation to to our paths, you know, is where I'd, I'd love mm -hmm. to focus. Um, uh, we can start it here if you want, which is... Um, you know, I, I've actually had some some students over the years who, um, when I'm introducing a lot of analytical meditation, like let's say from the Lam Rim or or other forms of it, and in the Nyingma and Kagyu lineages of Tibetan Buddhism, they they often practice the Lam Rim in, in the form of the four thoughts that turn the mm -hmm. mind, yeah, and then they add bodhicitta and and then they add um, studies of Madhyamaka. So it ends up being more or less the same thing, um, but. Um, 
But within the, you know, within that, I've had some people struggle because they reach this point where they're like, wait, am I just brainwashing myself with other ideas? You know? And, and so maybe I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because we can start yeah. with me. Yeah. So, so the short answer is yes, <laughs> you are brainwashing yeah, yeah. yourself. But <laughs> yeah. the longer answer is you're always brainwashing yourself. And this is the, this is what we know from neuroscience. There's a phrase that uh, one of the pioneers of, you know, neuroscience, neuroscience, neuroplasticity said, neurons that wire, that fire together, neurons that fire together, wire together. Mm. So this is the scientific backing for, for what happens with meditation or any kind of thought and action is that anything you do, it reinforces the habit of doing it again and again. Anything you think it reinforces the habit of thinking it again and again. And this completely, this is where science and Buddhism completely align that it's, it's a scientific mechanism for why meditation works. So the, so we're always, we're always brainwashing ourselves. Um, (laughs) when you're, or when you're telling yourself a story about like how much you don't like your boss or um, how much you, you know, uh, want to eat a piece of cake or something like that, you're, <laughs> you're brainwashing yourself. You're telling yourself a, a story. So uh, analytical meditation is taking control of that process and learning techniques. It's like, it's like with, with um, muscle training or exercise where you might um, naively get a little bit exercised by walking down the street and then you could learn you know to run or something like that but then if you really learn how to isolate every muscle group for example in in a in your workout then all of a sudden you have much more control over your body and you can work on the upper body and the lower body and your hands and fingers and toes and, and all of that so i think that's what analytical meditation is it's acknowledging we're always brainwashing ourselves and then using a toolkit of meditations that were developed over you know, at least a thousand years, 1500 years, maybe some of them, you know, since the Buddhist time, but the ones in our lineage, you know, a thousand, 1500 years, um, they work, they've worked for a lot of different people. So yeah. yeah, you are brainwashing yourself, but you're always brainwashing yourself. So you might as well take control of that process. And not only yourself, by the, everything you do, watching a movie. Sometimes I tell people, you know, if you're willing to go watch, you know, a Marvel movie or some movie where a hundred people get killed in 90 minutes, you know, you might as well try some of these other, <laughs> other ways of condition. <laughs> All of those things condition your mind, you know, watching people get totally. killed, watch, watching people argue with each other. Um, uh, uh, these things all condition ourselves. Uh, one way or another. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Well said. And I usually, I, I usually, you know, express that same notion of like, we're always brainwashing ourselves by the sense of, um, uh, we, we all believe in something, you know, there's, there's always belief functioning. And I think that this is kind of brings up something, you know, to me, that's quite important because when, when we're establishing what we call in, in, in some of the Buddhist traditions, like Tibetan Buddhism, when we're establishing view, uh, view meaning like perspective, what we're what we're trying to get used to, what we're trying to bring into our mind and life, right? When we're studying the Buddhist the Buddhist view, for me the first the first thing that needs to be established is that we already have a view. You know, we already have yeah. a belief, or or as you put it, there's already some sense of being brainwashed into some perspective or or lots of perspectives of about ourselves in the world. You know, so it's it's an interesting one because I don't know how you feel about that personally. I don't feel like that was explicit to me in my Buddhist education uh, in Tibetan Buddhism initially. And it's just something I had to, I don't know if it's like completely on my own. I also had other teachers who, who then eventually filled that in for me. 
Yeah, it's not part of it's not part of normal Tibetan Buddhism because the whole tradition everyone was a Buddhist. So so mm. historically they just knew that was the common view for everybody. I think I was lucky with my teachers because I think very early on teachers like Venerable Lune, for example, I remember him very clearly saying, "Everyone has their ism. It, there's actually you know seven billion of them on this planet. You have the." the Tusaism and Snibbyism and, and, and everything else. So, so I did have a teacher say that really on, you know, analyze, go, go sit for a little while or take a walk and think, what do I believe? Like, for example, why do things happen in the world? Do I think that things are random? Do I think there's some, you know, some reward or punishment for, for virtue and harm? Um, do I think it's completely mechanistic and deterministic that, you know, it all started with the big bang and, and the world is the universe operates like a clock or a machine. So, um, you know, and then to put your mind in certain situations, like, you know, if I was like on a plane and it started diving, like, would I start praying? <laughs> what, what thoughts could go through my head? Um, where did I come from? Like what happened? What was, what was my mind before I was born? What was it? Where, where will it go after it dies? Have I known people that died? And what did that feel like? I think though, probing those boundaries of existence yourself, it's a great thing to start with. Yeah. Before you even get into looking at the Buddhist view, just to figure out what you really believe, because, um, Somehow that's because a lot, you know, people are a lot, a lot of people don't, weren't raised with any religion mm. and a lot of parents say, oh, we'll let our kid choose. Um, but really that means raising your kid without religion. And then, then they have to kind of discover it for themselves as they get older. So, so yeah, we all have some belief. And, and I think when you really look at it, a lot of our beliefs are the, the sort of, you know, advertising corporate <laughs> beliefs mm. that if we get the right stuff that we'll be happy you know, that will, if we have, um, you know, sufficient and it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be, you know, fancy things like a Tesla, yeah. but just if you have a nice house and, uh, and good food and, um, friends and a family, like that's reasonable, actually, it's reasonable to have those things. But the messages we see, you know, through advertising and even through movies is, is kind of like, you're not complete yourself, that you need things outside yourself to, to make you happy. And um, that's a little different than the yeah. Buddhist view, which is that you can find a deep happiness just from uh, within yourself. And uh, it doesn't mean you just go hide out and you know hide in a cave for the rest of your life. It actually make you a better husband and, and partner and friend and president and, and totally. boss and nurse and, and everything else. It'll actually improve all your relationships um, if you don't approach them with such a sense of like neediness and want. Um, that you require, that you require such a big list of things for your happiness. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, uh, you know, this this is kind of, um, I, I think, you know, on, on a personal level, I'll just kind of describe my own experience. This is this is a very challenging area. It has been a very challenging area for me because it, when we, when we turn the lens to look at the Buddhist view to see Hey, is this is this describing reality correctly? Is this something useful? You know, like you said, initially we're just, you know, trying to connect with um, virtuous states of mind or states of mind that are more pro-social, like compassion, loving kindness, etc., uh, awareness. Um, but but eventually, you know, we have to turn the lens back around to discover you know, where are my limitations in, in relation to that? What beliefs am I holding that are preventing preventing me from actually like being compassion, for instance, or being yeah. awareness? And um yeah, so so I to for me that that that's been quite 
quite challenging. I mean, that, that's been a path. That's been a, you know, multi-year process. Um, so I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, your experience with that, but also, um, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to say, um, I'd love to get into this conversation after that of, of, um, so, so what, so what's the use for secularism, you know, because if we're already, sorry, I'm maybe asking too many questions in the same you know, breath, but, you know, I have this doubt of like why we need to even use the word secularism because secularism often represents a, a view that's pushing away other views, but holding its own view and, and not recognizing that or, or denying that there's a view a little bit. You know, like yeah. you said, like someone who was maybe raised without religion or spirituality, they're raised in something, you know, and, and why is that different than a form of spirituality? I mean, these are questions I'm asking, you know. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> well, you know, maybe it's always nice to start out with a Dalai Lama because His Holiness, you see, when we when we say a word, this is this is a thing that, you know, Buddhism acknowledges very well is that when we say a word, each of us actually hears it differently. <laughs> and mm. So so even if you say this word secular, even you and I have, have different perspectives on it. So the way His Holiness the Dalai Lama uses the word secular, I think in a very beautiful way, because he talks about Indian society as being a model secular society because it's so tolerant of every type of religion, you know, as well as no religion. And I think that's, that's a very, I think that's a very nice <laughs> idea of secularism is, is more like inclusive. It's, it doesn't exclude religion, <laughs> mm. secularity, but it's actually a, a plurality of uh, accepting a plurality of beliefs. So that's how his holiness kind of uses that term, which is, which is quite nice. Um, if I'm not mistaking him, I, this is just from listening to some of his talks. Yeah. And, and, but that's, that's great. I mean, to me, I, I resonate a lot with that yeah. having, you know, spent time in India and really resonate with that, that cultural perspective of being able to hold a lot of different views and um, how do you say um, a generous attitude towards what people want to do with their spiritual life, as long as it's not harming others. Uh, right. Um, but, uh, but that's not often how we think of secularism in the West. So it's, you know, it's, that's a, I still have this Yeah, question. yeah. Well, the, yeah, so then let's go. But I was surprised kind of hearing, the, you know, the dialogue always has such a beautiful way of seeing things. So I wanted to start out with that because it was very yeah. nice. Cause it, and that the idea of India, India does have a lot of problems, but it's the biggest democracy in the world, you know, a billion people. And it's very, it, it's it's kind of a cool model for yeah. where society can go. It's very messy, but it's quite religious on one side, quite secular on the no another, quite poor and then quite rich. It's, it's an extraordinarily dynamic society. So secularism usually means um, without belief, you know, that mm -hmm. you, but, but the thing is, um, you can't define your, a friend of mine, Bjarke Engels, this great architect who's a friend of mine, he says, if you define, if you only define yourself by what you're against, you're just a follower in reverse. <laughs> <laughs> so like that's the thing yeah, if I you define that. yourself against religion like um um what's what's the selfish gene get richard dawkins for example oh, yeah, like yeah. i've seen him give actually i saw him give a talk right when that book came out a long time it was one of my first real intellectual talks i got to see as an adult and it was so anti you know that's the thing it's it's so violently <laughs> against religion um and that's okay you know that's his perspective but then you know, then you can't figure out what he's for so that's the thing about, so I think def defining secularism, like from my, my own sort of, I guess you'd say snooby flavor of secularism is about, is more about acknowledging what it's for, which is, um, 
I would tend to say, and these are the kind of people who come to the skeptics path podcasts and classes and things like mm-hmm. that. They're generally people who don't believe in anything that can't be proven by science. Mm. And I think, and science, psychology, um, and of course, there's a lot of things that we'll discover uh, later <laughs> that science will establish, maybe even past and future lives and other realms and who knows, or that the consciousness is at the root of the universe, something like that. But right now we don't have any scientific evidence for things like that. So that's, that's the working definition of secularism that I tend to use, you know, in my work, in my work, you know, in mm. teaching meditation and, and um, running the podcast is uh, people who only believe in what science, modern science and psychology can establish. So based on that ground, what kind of spirituality can you have? Can you even have, and then you have to define spirituality, (laughs) (laughs) right? So I tend to define spirituality as the invisible. Like ever since I was a little kid, I was more interested in the invisible things than the visible and things like infinity or love or, um, you know, consciousness and, and, and things like that. So I think you can define spirituality in a, a secular form, you know, without saying that it's about a soul or a God or, or anything like that. And just say it's about the invisible, the immaterial things in life. Things, there are things that are immaterial um, yet still exist. Mm. Like, and I like starting out with math, you know, math is immaterial. <laughs> there's no math detector. Um, there's... The, the math describes the way the universe works better than any other method that we've come up with, but it doesn't exist anywhere. Math it's, 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 it, well, no, it, it does exist, but it doesn't exist in a material form. It's immaterial. Yeah. Love is immaterial also, right? Yeah. Like the love is in our neurons or in an, a texted emoji heart or something like that. It's, it's something immaterial. So I think you kind of, you can walk people towards spirituality quite quickly once you accept that, there are immaterial things and it's not supernatural mm. I, ideas, uh, emotions. There are, there are effects. There, there are, there are simultaneous material uh, causes and effects that relate to emotions like neurons firing and words coming out of our mouth and so on. But the actual emotion, the actual mathematics, um, and then also, you know, more spiritual ideas of uh, consciousness and um, how to evolve your mind. Um, so I think that's, like the, the the gentle walk for a secular mm-hmm. person towards spirituality is is taking only what we understand scientifically as a basis and then also realizing that there are immaterial things that um, aren't ghosts <laughs> or gods <laughs> or, or souls um, there's a lot of real immaterial things even computer programs are yeah. immaterial you know they're they're a they're a configuration of energy moving through um computer systems like mm. the program is not the computer but where's the program <laughs> right it's it's actually a material it's a kind of configuration of information um that correlates with material changes but isn't isn't wholly that matter yeah yeah wonderful yeah i love i love those examples i often use the example in the same department i use the examples of gravity oh there you go uh, yeah yeah and i also like to guide a meditation for people um, uh, imagining the color red or imagining a red or blue ball. And, you know, yes, the brain and physiology and all of that, you know, help to produce the color red in the mind or the color blue or, or even the image of a ball, but that the image itself in the mind, the actual blue ball, meaning, you know, that, where did that come from? You know, what is that? And, and then we get into this discussion on, you know, because Buddhism is mostly, 
interested in in mind i mean really yeah. like the whole buddhist corpus is talking about you know i don't know how many you know 70 percent mind 75 percent mind you know and so it's yeah so i need, yeah. but and it's the first topic you know i think that's actually what's tricky like the first topic really is the mind because you and, and that's what you start to realize is that there is all of our reality is psychological, right? Well, mm. you were talking about the color red. So there is no red out in the world. And you can argue with people about it, but red is a vibration of invisible electromagnetic energy at a certain frequency that comes through your eye and comes through your senses. And then your brain interprets as a quality. Once it gets to that sense of a quality of red, we're in a total no man's land of absolutely not understanding what that is. This is what um, David Chalmers calls the hard problem of consciousness, mm, which yeah, is yeah. how do the how do the the configuration of neurons in our brain relate to the the subjective experience of red, uh, sweet, uh, love, uh, or just uh, or just or just sub subjectivity itself, just the sense that I am here and I'm observing and experiencing something. Nobody's explained that yet. And it's, um, and it may take hundreds of years, you know, um, Rick, Han Dr. Rick Hansen, he's very humble in his book, Buddha's brain. That's a great book on neuroscience and Buddhism. And he says, you know, it may be 350 years. He says, if you look at <clears throat> the beginning of physics, the earliest, earliest, um, Western enlightenment physics, like Galileo, uh, then Einstein, Einstein, you know, a hundred years ago, which it took us about 350 years to bring physics to the point where it is today, which has an extraordinary mm. understanding of material reality. And we're probably much earlier, like we've only really started studying consciousness in the brain in the last, what, 20 or 30 years. So, so he says 300 years, I don't know if it'll take oh, yeah. that long, but it's realistic. Yeah. It's realistic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't mean be dismissive but i often say like you know modern modern um uh, uh mind science you know in, in the in the western world it's 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 really in its infant stages it's it, you know there's much more advanced western like physics is a very advanced field uh, mm -hmm. where we're kind of brain science is still still in the beginning and i think you know the best scientists who study the brain would admit that like yeah. you know they but um yeah yeah wonderful um you know there's so, so yeah, going back a bit, I was kind of, you know, you know, I have my own take on this, which I don't know if I want to share too much. I more just want to hear what you say. I, yeah. But, you know, I guess I have a high, I always have like hypotheses I'm working with or sort of, yeah. you know, my perspectives are always changing. And I think for, for me, being an explorer of the mind and reality, you know, trying to emphasize that in my practice, I always have to leave open questions. I can't sort of, you know, if I nail something down, I notice... Um, I get stuck. I start to lose openness. Yeah. I start to lose that inquisitiveness. But I've been kind of flirting with this idea lately that, um, you know, why? I, I think what you're talking about is more of a skillful means, you know, for people who are, let's say, they practice the religion of science. I'll just be yeah. blunt, you know, and they, uh, without knowing it, you know, they, they don't know they practice the religion of science, but they do. And then, you know, it's an entrance point. It's like, hey, there's this whole tradition that explores the mind and explores reality. And you can do that um, safely, you know, from your boat. <laughs> and then, and then, of course, you know, if people want to offer them an opportunity to open their, their bias or limiting perspective. Um, but yeah, I kind of have this notion, I'm kind of like, you know, 
more and more I'm, I think Buddhism is both a religion and a spiritual path and a science. Mm. I think it has all these aspects. So we can't just say Buddhism is one thing. Uh, it has different aspects to it, but I kind of, the way I like to approach Buddhism personally, and, and sometimes when I, when I'm guiding people, um, is, um, is something that's beyond secularism or religion and kind yeah. of just like approaching it that way, just approaching it from the standpoint of, Hey, like here's some things to reflect on and introducing tools like analytical meditation, Qigong, Jogong, resting meditation, other aspects to kind of just explore the mind. And I think, I almost think we're kind of at it. We're almost ready for that. Uh, culturally, because I think we're seeing, you know, a lot of us are seeing the limitations of belief. We're seeing the limitations of fixation on ideologies and political, you know, posturing and all this stuff. And I think a lot of us are just sick of that. And we want to find another way to be in the world. I, I mean, I'm yeah. sick of that, you know, so I don't know. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, well, what you say, what you say in terms of people believing in science, Houston Smith calls this scientism, yeah. which is the, the idea, it's a, um, an irrational belief that science, that there is a materialist explanation for every phenomena in the universe. Because of course it hasn't been established that everything can be explained and broken down into material causes. Um, but there are people who believe that. Not all scientists believe it. Lots of scientists are, because, you know, true curious scientists, they all, they just accept whatever is whatever we've discovered right now along with it, its provisionality um david deutsch is one of my very mm. favorite scientists and he wrote a book called the beginning of infinity and it's it's all about the progression of scientific knowledge and what he says is that there's no such thing as a a, a true scientific theory there's no there's only uh, there's only less wrong we just go from <laughs> wrong to less wrong theories and uh, even our current theories, like the theory of relativity, um, that will probably be subsumed one day by some other theory. So it's not like relativity is just just the same way Newtonian. I mean, maybe it's better to talk about things that have already been subsumed. So you start with Newtonian, mm. although relativity and quantum mechanics are incompatible. But think about Newtonian physics. It was later completely replaced with relativity, which solves all the same problems and more. So was Newton wrong and Einstein right? Sort of, but but Einstein's also wrong too. Like that's the that's the perspective of someone like mm. David Deutsch is that there's an infinite. All the evidence shows us is there's an infinite progression of of knowledge possible in the universe. So we will never have a final correct answer. We only have um, more and more accurate models that help us, you know, predict and explain the world around us. And so that's why it's nice to be open to many different types of inquiry. That's, that's what Buddhism offers is that science right now doesn't, um, so most of it doesn't so much accept subjective experience mm -hmm. as, um, a high, as a high standard of evidence. Like people do do science to perform scientific studies that rely on subjective experience and filling out questionnaires and telling, telling about you. But those generally aren't considered the strongest scientific It's the ones where we can use an external instrument to measure um, something. But the thing is what what our aspirations as human beings are, are much greater than what science could lead us to today. There isn't a, a scientific method for being happy <laughs> yet or, or, or having a good relationship, even having a meaningful life. So that's the beauty of Buddhism is that it, it developed this to such an extraordinary, um, extraordinarily refined level. 
and it offers you these these practices. And really, all you have to do is um, provisionally accept the hypothesis that my subjective experience is extremely valid if you can mm. tune it. You know, if you can, like, you can trick yourself and tell yourself lies all the time. But yeah, you just become aware of that. You become attuned to that too. You accept all that, and you can surf really deeply within in your own mind and steer your own mind in a way that um, no scientific method is capable of yet. And the, the, the scientific methods that have been capable of doing that have done it by borrowing from Buddhism. Yeah. That yeah, yeah. They, They've extracted small bits like mindfulness, compassion, figured out a way to systematize them in a laboratory, measure brain correlates of like parts of your brain that, that are correlated with being more um, empathetic or compassionate. And then, you can st- and then you can publish a paper and say, if you use this Buddhist method, your brain grows in this region. And that growth is correlated with people who are um, happier and more yeah. compassionate. But you don't need that big, it's really incredible and wonderful that science is doing that. But as an, as an individual human, you, it's, it's quite a desperate situation where <laughs> we, need, we need to address these issues with our craving and anger and, um, and also enjoy and, and happiness and meaning right now. Our, yeah. lives are, our lives are happening right now and we can't wait 350 years for science to validate you know, Mahamudra or something like that. <laughs> so, uh, but luckily, you know, again, this is where there's this nice convergence where Buddhism does consider itself, especially in the lineage we're in, a science of the mind. Mm. And the primary tool is the mind itself, that there's a way to have the mind look at the mind and not be deceived. And you go really, really deeply um, yeah. into that. But essentially that's the essence of meditation, right? It's the mind looking at the mind. Um, and that itself is a huge revelation because you start to, you start to have um, doubts about certain things, like, um, like, oh, I must, I can't, I must not really be my thoughts and feelings if I can observe them. Mm-hmm. You know, if I can get a like a third person perspective on my third thoughts and thoughts and feelings, then there's some other aspect to myself that isn't those. So it's such a nice. It's one of the first things I think that can really free you in meditation is realizing I'm not my thoughts that I can just watch them and decide <laughs> which ones I want to follow. It's amazing that it's hard, obviously. You know, I mean, I've been practicing 22 years or whatever, and I get carried away with certain things still. But I loved, I was talking to Venerable Renee the other day, you know, we were talking about anger. I was talking to him about anger. Uh, you know, I was talking about the different delusions and how to fight them, you know. And he said, oh, you know, anger is the easy one, isn't it? Because, you know, it feels so bad, so you just you just let it pass. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> right. I mean, okay. Yeah. It's easy to recognize that it sucks yeah. for, for, you know, yeah. like out of all the emotions, I think we're like, yeah, yeah this feels bad. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Can but no, no, but then working with it is difficult. That's, that's yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you know, there's this incredible, you know, this, this verse, this incredible verse from Shantideva where he said, if things came into being by, by choice, then no mm. one would suffer. So yeah. <laughs> that is, the things that Shantideva said are so mind-blowing. Like you could just take one thing that Shantideva said and think about it your whole life. But that one is so profound. Just to think about that. Wow. You realize I am not in control of my own mind because of course I want to be happy. That's number one. I definitely want to be happy. And I think I'm choosing to be happy, but somehow it's not working. I'm just, I don't have the skill. I don't have the skill and the method to be happy, to benefit others, you know, to do things 
I mean, I think we all really do want to benefit others, but how often does it backfire? How often do you try? You try to so much, so many, yeah. so many conflicts happen from two people actually trying to benefit each other, two people trying to benefit each other, but just <laughs> doing it in a way that really annoys the other person. Yeah, for me, more and more, this is just how I see the world. You know, yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, you know, there's a few things around this, and I, I want to go back to a little bit uh, on sure. our discussion about um, science, but um, you know, it, it's. For me, until we've done enough work with our own individual experience to see that, you know, we don't have the freedom to, to choose because we're, we're being controlled by our habits, behaviors and what we call kleshas in Sanskrit yeah. or disturbing emotions. Um, and, yeah. and, and until we realize that's a prison, I don't know if the practice goes anywhere so profound, you know, I mean, you know, so this is kind of like a big subject I'm thinking about. And, and it's not like, and then, of course, like that connects into seeing like, oh, other people are in their own prison, too. Like your prison is not the same as my prison. Yeah. But nonetheless, it's a prison and a prison of mind. And and then, of course, Buddhism, the Buddha taught and there's a way out of that prison. That's the most important part. But I think, you know, the focus, you know, some of that focus for me, it's like this, you know, just using that as an example. It's a subjective where all the richness comes out. So yeah. what's interesting for me is I totally agree with you because I think you know the work that Dalai Lama has done with the Mind, Mind and Life Institute and all his work with with scientists over the years and and trying to find common ground and and as you say like the spirit of genuine scientists is one of openness and open questions and and discovery and 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 not knowing the answer etc. And, and I really think that's amazing uh, and I would call them also explorers of reality for that reason. Yeah, but there's still a reliance on the, on the objective, which actually, in, to me, that inherently makes it material. I mean, that, it, that, that approaches everything in, you know, innately from a materialist perspective, where the subjective gets a lot more interesting because it starts to go beyond the immaterial because we start to look at you know, the, the, the mind and how we get caught up. If I take a word, you know, the word prison might be a little triggering. So just the mind as we get caught up in our own stuff and our own identities and, and ego clinging and, and thoughts and ideas. But when we become a discoverer of that, we see how much of that is immaterial. And so we start to realize we need to work in the immaterial. You know, that's what the discovery becomes. You know, I don't know about for you, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what you're talking about is is like the middle of the path is renunciation, yeah. right? I mean, the, the, when the Buddha taught, he taught these four noble truths right away. But when we put them in the order of the Lam Rim, it's sort of toward the middle and uh, where you face this really kind of scary step of renunciation, which what, what does that mean? And, and you're describing how we learn about renunciation in our tradition, which is not renouncing. I like to quote this Alex Bertson. He had a beautiful, beautiful explanation of this in, the, in a book called The Gelug Kagyu Tradition. Mission of Mahamudra. Yeah. And he says, Great renunciation book. isn't giving up something trivial like ice cream <laughs> or, or giving up something really, um, um, something less trivial like making love to your partner uh, or having friends and things like that. It's giving up our delusions. Mm -hmm. It's giving up attachment, especially these three poisons, attachment, anger, and ignorance. And um, in some way, I find that, I found that very freeing when I saw that because I think, a lot of people think, and, and by the way, some other Buddhist traditions do have the view of renunciation, that it is trying to step away as well, much as possible from material can, things. Yeah, in our tradition, yeah, it's a little different, yeah. 
Well, if I could just interject for a second, I mean, this is where I think we can we can also you know go into some other conversation on on how rich yeah. the Buddhist path can be with this explorative, how do you say it, um, view based perspective where we're we're ha- holding open questions and the practices, the ritual, vows or ethics are all in relationship to this. So, just to give you a quick example, and, mm. and then sorry to interrupt you, but um, oh no, you know, because because I think often they get mistaken as this because in the beginning, you know, there's like okay. Do this and don't do this. You know, we, we take ethics as part of the path. But all, for me, at this point, after, you know, reflecting on this for a long time, I see them differently. I do not see them as rules. I see them as boundaries to to work one's mind with, to see, you know, how how and what are the causes of suffering and how to work more skillfully with them. So then, then in a sense, renouncing, let's say, like I was, I was a monk for nine years, so, so renouncing certain things, you know, being a monk, you know, yes, in the beginning, that very much felt like, you know, rejecting yeah. something on the outer level. But now I think of it much differently. It's just sort of like it's in relation to like a boundary or a path to help see the mind. And in that sense, it points to the same renunciation we're talking about. Like it points yeah. to the ultimate renunciation we're referring to, which is understanding that the mind binds itself or frees itself. But it's interesting because, the I mean, I, I'd like to use this as a jumping off point for our conversation too, because, you know, the Buddhist path is not just like sitting practice, as you said, you know, there's analytical meditation, there's also ritual, there's vows and ethics, there's, there's cultural aspects. And, you know, when, you know, if we're talking about, I often see like the wish to secularize Buddhism or sort of like make it more applicable. But for me, it's already applicable. We just have to understand why we're using these different things. And then of course, make them culturally appropriate, you know? So sorry to sidetrack our conversation, but oh yeah, no, I mean there's so much, there's so much to say there. Geshe Loden, Geshe Tubin Loden, who wrote my favorite book on Lamrim meditations on the path to enlightenment, he says you're more likely to find a bodhisattva at a football game than in a meditation <laughs> cave, you know, <laughs> because of course you want to if you want to benefit beings, you have to be around beings. So so yeah, an engaged life, like Thich Nhat Hans, engaged Buddhism, and an engaged life is the one where you can benefit people the most. Um, but yeah, these ideas of, well, you're talking about ethics. So yeah, just sort of like, well, I I, I guess what I'm hinting at just for the broader conversation, what I'm hinting at is sort of like, again, like how we apply healthy skepticism, even relation to like, are we just cherry picking the path or is there like a structure that we want to kind of surrender to, to a certain extent with a healthy form of skepticism, you know, and you and I both done that to a certain extent. And I think we've, I, 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 Definitely for me, but I, I think for you, as we've talked, we've both derived so much benefit out of that. Yeah. And I think that we just, it's something that needs to be talked about more. So that's why I'm yeah. bringing it up, you know? Yeah, well, let's talk about that. So the thing is, they're very well-known drawbacks of cherry picking uh, from the Buddhist path. And there are huge benefits, obviously. <coughs> but they're very well-known drawbacks. I'll, I'll talk about a couple, right? So one yeah. of the drawbacks of cherry picking mindfulness is that it can actually... In some cases, it can lead you to uh, ruminate on your problems, actually. Like with, without, if you only teach concentration um, without how to steer that concentration to, between one object and another, and there's a few scientific studies out now that, sh- that, that show this, that for some people, especially people who don't have the healthiest mind, the meditation's a nightmare. It makes their mm-hmm. life much worse because they just start, they just treat it like rumination. So 
um, pure mindfulness alone without a little bit of steering. Like the people who benefit from mindfulness is that I think they just happen to have a benevolent well mm. in which to in which to experience their mindfulness. So, so the, the people that benefit from mindfulness is because they also had an analytical component to their mind naturally that... Uh, because many people going to mindfulness meditation would have a good attitude. They wouldn't be doing it to go, to go be able to hold their rifle more steadily. <clears throat> so, um, so that's one thing. So, so just concentration alone can be detached from, it can create rumination and it can also be detached from ethics. So it, it would just make you a better, you know, better at doing your job or uh, better at sleeping or something like that, but not necessarily at anything virtuous. But even, even compassion though, like if you overemphasize compassion, then in generally, in, uh, often people don't know what to do uh, with that compassion, right? Like that's the typical drawback of, and we all know people like this who are so extraordinarily compassionate, but they get overwhelmed. You know, they get o- they get overwhelmed by that feeling and don't and confused also and don't know what to do in the world to ameliorate the problems that they feel very, very strongly. So, or, so that's, or, yeah. Sorry. Or, or like you said, I mean, you brought up a really good point earlier. Like when there's not, when there's, when there's not, you know, wisdom merged with skillful means, yeah. we can often harm more without realizing it. You know, you yeah. mentioned that a little bit. Yeah. 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 And if you, if you overemphasize wisdom, which a lot of people say is what Steve Jobs did. Like I think Ram Dass said this, he said, Steve Jobs was kind of like all, all, all emptiness and no, no compassion. So, which I don't think that's true. I know people who work with Steve Jobs and and just loved him, but um, there that is that can be the case. Like if you only go into you know one form of wisdom, um, then you you are um, it's kind of cold. You know, it's kind mm. of cold and, and analytical, and it lacks like the warmth of applying that. So, like that's why you need a whole path. That's why you would say <clears throat> it's it is difficult, and in general, it is beneficial to cherry pick and you know use all these techniques because in general, it, it's the alternative to somebody just kind of thinking about you know chasing their attachment and anger and so on. Yeah, um, but for them yeah, to yeah. actually work together, it, it works as the the Buddhist path is complicated, at least the way we learned it. Very, and all yeah. these pieces <laughs> do fit together in an extraordinary way. Like I don't even like a, you know, like an, one of those incredible three dimensional puzzles, you know, that are like very hard to solve. Like gradually, as you study Buddhism, it's so beautiful the way you see that every element fits into the next. So you do need these kind of eight or nine topics, I think to make sense of it in our, in our tradition. Not that you can't benefit from parts, but to really reap the complete benefit, it's because you can see how any one of them just starts veering, any one subject starts veering a little bit off the rails. Like if you only think about impermanence, you can become a kind of nihilist, like, woohoo, let's go do whatever we want tonight. Like, who cares? Impermanence. Um, you, you need to combine it with the other aspects of the path. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Yeah, and, and and they benefit each other. I mean, the aspects of the yeah. paths also serve other aspects. And, yeah. and, you know, also something I've been kind of harping on lately, which this relates to is, um, you know, I, I think when we're shopping, like when we're spiritually shopping, I, I don't think there's a problem with cherry picking because we're just trying different things and kind of like seeing, hey, what, what resonates with me? What kind of viewpoint? What blah, blah, blah. But at some point, you know, we need some structure because otherwise, like, as you're saying, we're not deepening in anything. Um, it's not connected to anything or in worst case scenario, it can kind of like, you know, uh, uh, emphasize, you know, it, it can go the wrong direction because yeah. it's, it's getting too overbearing in one department. But, um, uh, you know, there's this, there's, 
Oh, that's what I was going to say. There's there's this kind of also something I'm thinking about too, which is um I think I think sometimes uh, meditation gets uh, co-opted by technique. And and for me, actually, meditation techniques. This is a little controversial. I've, I got a YouTube video coming out about it soon. We'll see how people respond. Um, I, I, I kind of I kind of believe meditation techniques in and of themselves are dead ends mm-hmm. um, if they're not connected to to a view and then a wider path as we're describing. Yeah. And so, kind of like you know, in our conversation, where you know we're, we're talking about, then like what's how do we approach that where we're where we're not necessarily just switching our belief system from one belief system to another, you know, which is that that's a whole, for me, that's been a whole journey. So, I, I mean, that's also yeah. another way to think about <clears> it. <throat> no, the view is very important. It's worth, yeah, it's worth backing up to, to mention there is a, there's an approach to the world and there's an approach to your mind in Buddhism. I, I just heard a really nice little video with Alan Wallace talking about it very articulately. And he said, the, the view of ethics, Buddhist does have ethical view. It can be quite elaborate, obviously, like what do you do in the world? But he boiled it down very simply. He just said the the Buddhist view of ethics is nonviolence and benevolence, Mm -hmm. is that your actions do not harm and (laughs) and that and that the the things that you do are meant to help. That's that's Buddhist ethics in in a nutshell, actually. And you don't hear things like that articulated that much. Like it's it's pretty Mm -hmm. sad in our culture that that isn't at the basis of um, you know our political systems, our our moral systems. It's the the basis of our culture is um, you know d- don't break the laws. Like essentially, as long as you're not stepping on anyone else's toes, like do whatever you want. Yeah, that yeah. that is our ethic. That's that's the kind of enlightenment era. Not not Buddhist enlightenment, but Western <laughs> enlightenment. Yeah. Right, the, the enlightenment of the individual, like the indi- individual. Yeah, you know, uh, the individual. And the Tup- individual. Tupton yeah. Jinpa talks about. He gave this amazing talk um, in like 2017 that I love about this. Very gently, you know, analyzing the pro- the progression of of Western you know politics, mm-hmm. particularly in political systems, you know, in civilization, and how we have we have a a society, a civilization. It's not not just a nation, but a civilization that has the, these that is mostly ethics free. That mm-hmm. there, except for very extreme things like t- taking someone else's life, stealing from some, like material physical harm is prohibited. But besides that, do whatever you want. Cut down all the trees on your land. You know, um, pour, pour oil into the oceans. Um, pay people as little as you want, right? Like those things aren't, none of those things are embedded in our system. So he's, he advocates quite strongly for those things moving into the, the political mm-hmm. realm, that those become embedded in our laws, you yeah. know, that, that morality actually, because it is so intrinsic. The Buddhist view is it's intrinsic to existence, that if you actually want to be a happy individual, you need to have nonviolence and benevolence at your core. And imagine if that was, those aren't in the Declaration of Independence, <laughs> you know, in the U.S. It's not, it's a pursuit of happiness, but it doesn't say how to pursue happiness. And it turns out to really be happy, you need this ethical foundation. And then there's also a meditative, you know, an extraordinary inner path that we've been mostly talking about, which is how to find the depths of um, happiness and meaning within your own mind. It's an extraordinary place to explore. Yeah, yeah, beautifully said, and you know, yeah, and it's interesting because I think you know it's been a journey for me, um, just just trying to like re not like reprogram, but like understand or or break apart the views of how I was like how I was taught or culturally 
you know, just, I don't think we're even taught a lot of these things. We just pick them up as we grow up. You know, we pick them up. Not even some of us who weren't even, you know, didn't even grow up with like very intense religious, you know, uh, uh, dogma. We still end up in this, this view of ethics as like a set of rules, as a set of like what's defining us as a good or bad person, as opposed to like what's defining us in as, as in connection with the world. Yeah. And and really in Buddhism for me ethics really just come down to like recognizing there are there uh, you know recognizing recognizing cause and effect there is an effect for everything that we do and if you don't recognize that not only is it unskillful because we can experience a lot of suffering and cause a lot of suffering it's actually it's a form of nihilism it's a form of <clears throat> you know if if we don't recognize that so it's so, yeah. but it's it's different because it's like I'll bring this in you know, I teach Buddha nature a lot, even though Buddha nature is one of the most difficult subjects in Buddhism to teach. So I'll just say I like to talk about it, but I'm also reticent to talk about it because it's it's so deep and often Buddha nature can get misunderstood as a soul or some kind of other ego-based yeah. thing. But anyways, for me, just introducing it here a little bit uh, in our conversation, you know, it, the basic premise is that is that we are we are not fundamentally flawed. That we are fundamentally, yeah. you know, at our nature, our basic nature, are okay. And then, and then, and then that's interesting because then we still have a relative world that is based on cause and effect, and that we have to interact with and and accept those realities to a certain degree mm-hmm. and and use them to our advantage to reconnect with our buddha nature i mean i think of buddhist buddhist ethics as a very skillful teaching of the buddha to help reconnect us to our buddha nature similar to how you said like we start to we start to naturally see what's advantageous to the mind as opposed to natural to the mind so yeah, yeah. but robert thurman you know he always has such beautiful ways of putting this he has a new book called wisdom is bliss his, his latest mm. book and he talks about that bias. He says, the universe is biased towards connection. And acts of connection are what uh, make you happy. So the ultimate act of connection is, you know, giving someone something, hugging someone, you know, just love, kindness, generosity. The ultimate act of disconnection is killing somebody, mm-hmm. right? So he said, and that I think that, re- that really is the Buddhist view is that these actions is like the universe itself is biased towards connection and and away from disconnection. Um, and if you look at the earth, you know, the whole biosphere, especially kind of pre-industrial biosphere, you can see that like, of course, things are killing each other all the time. But in general, the great majority of life is biased towards connection mm-hmm. and growth. So you, so you bring up the point of cause and effect. That is, that is really the topic that helps w- with the biggest delusions that people have today. Because what is the most common thing that you hear when people are frustrated about something in the world? They say, I can't believe so-and-so <laughs> did so-and-so. Right? Yeah. So if you ever catch yourself saying, I can't believe X... It's ignorance. It's just ignorance. Of course, you know, it's just that you're not working hard enough. I'm sorry to put this kind of bluntly, but it's <laughs> no, like, you can. you're not working hard enough to think because the person's not crazy, actually. Some are a little bit crazy, but we're all crazy. We're actually all a little bit crazy. Like that person but has even a so, logic. there's like, there's cause yeah. and effect happening in that craziness, yeah. right? Yeah, like <laughs> if they are crazy, then you shouldn't be angry at them because they're actually crazy. But you can understand why people do, th- you can totally understand why Donald <laughs> Trump does things. It's not that hard. He's wears yeah. it on his sleeve, what his values are and what he cares about. It's quite clear why he yeah. does things. And it's quite clear why the people that follow him do those things. And 
if you really try to understand someone, you can't be angry at them. Tara Brock says this, is like the state of curiosity, the opposite of anger is curiosity, she says. It's actually Mm. not like patience. I mean, I like, it's one way of talking, right? Of course. But she's like, when you're in a curious state of mind, you can't be angry. And and, um, I have to say that is one thing Buddhism has really helped me with is Mm. that for so much, so much in life, you know, more than when I was younger, that I do feel this curiosity more than anything else of like, why are they doing that? And you can figure it out. Like, it's not that hard to figure out why Donald Trump did something or why or, somebody, or why your neighbor is fighting you about something. Just You just totally. put your head in their head, let go of your point of view and just look for them. It doesn't mean they're right. But they do have that, like you have to acknowledge it exists, that their point of view exists <laughs> and they have an internal logic to what they're doing. And today, so many people, like we live in such an oppositional culture today where um, a lot of younger activists today are even saying they refuse to empathize, that mm-hmm. even to think about their opponent's point of view diminishes um, their ability to oppose it. And Buddhism would say that's not the case. You're much more effective at opposing um, anything, racism, uh, classism, injustice, yeah. if you really understand the other side. And and once you do, you tend to not really be angry about it. You can be forceful mm. and effective, but yeah. it's hard to really be angry that you see, see cause and effect. You know, and you also see that arguing with people does not solve problems in general. Yeah. There's yeah, a, sure. very, very few examples that uh, argument or or um, uh, any any kind of <laughs> uh, any any kind of um, rationalizing. You know, this is where liberals often have a lot of problems. They try to make a rational argument why their <laughs> political case is correct, and it will never work. No rational argument for anything in general will ever work on anybody. Yeah. What moves people are stories, and stories are based on kind of emotions. And, um, and that's the, the power of the Buddhist. It really tunes your ability to, to empathize. You see the people who made the biggest impact in life, they were able to empathize. Like people mm. like Gandhi, Martin Luther King, yeah. like they were, they were for everybody. They actually, they were even for their opponents, right? Like mm. they were for humanity. They, yeah. they, they, no, they, even they had they were- their core group. Yeah, Even one could argue they weren't. I think what you said earlier still stands, which is that, yeah. you know, they, they were highly intelligent and highly yeah. skillful at understanding the other side and actually had yeah. a desire to do that. You know, f- yeah. for me, a lack of desire to do that, you know, yeah. it's similar to you for me, probably like that's one of the biggest things I've gotten out of Buddhism is curiosity for sure. Yeah. You know, just like a more curious spirit. And the more I explore that, actually the more happy I get, you know, uh, because yeah. there's just this sense of like openness we can come to, you know, and experience. And we, we don't have to believe our judgments, but we can still have ideas and perspectives and that's fine. And we can iterate on those ideas and perspectives and we can act from them. You know, like you said, like, you know, we don't want to just sit in like open question curiosity forever. We need to take action sometimes. But I think the, your point is, is wonderful that, you know, if we're taking action from a limited bias and viewpoint woof i mean watch out you know that's what to me that's what um you know there's also this sense of like it's very connected to like for me it's very also related to this sense of like when that becomes smaller when views become smaller or or, or the ability to, to open to wider views the compassion becomes smaller this sense of like yeah. what you're saying robert thurman said this you know this natural law of connection in the universe our recognition of that becomes cut off or, or smaller 
And it's it's really, honestly, if I were to say like what I think the one of the biggest problems in the world is right now, I would say that. You know, I would say this is driving a lot of modern problems, including climate change. So no, absolutely, and it comes from a confusion because you can fundamentally believe in everyone, every single person on earth has the right to a dignified health, you know, health insurance, food, clothing, shelter, you know, not, not to be oppressed, to be able to think and move freely. Like everybody to, to believe that, like, I'm not convinced everyone even believes that, you know, that that's the thing, because you, do you think of, do you think of, you know, the politician you hate or somebody like that, right? That you really need that ground, but that doesn't mean you can't be biased in your everyday in your everyday action. You you have a few people that you're involved with. For most of us, it's our family, our friends, our colleagues. Of course, those are the people who are going to most deeply and powerfully influence um, and and care about you know and actually actively care about. But to have it in the back of your mind that everybody deserves that, that everybody deserves happiness, kindness, um, wealth, security, justice. Um, my, my friend, Kim Stanley Robinson, you know, extraordinary science fiction author, you know, that's, he's written this in a couple of his books that he says, he says, humanity hasn't even begun. He says, mm. he says, humanity hasn't even begun until our, so everybody has those basic, basic human rights of, you know, clothing, shelter, health insurance, food, security, um, the right to think freely and, and, um, to live their life without being mm. harmed or, or pressed. Um, it doesn't, it actually doesn't come out that much. It would be nice. I think it would be nicer if that was more clearly at the basis that that's what we call equanimity. And yeah. this is one of these other topics in, in Buddhism is equanimity. It comes before love and compassion. That, that's part of the problem actually is a lot of people jump to a very advanced practice of compassion, but the earlier practice of equanimity is off the chart. It like knocks it out of the park. Just that, yeah. just a world of equanimity where people didn't have love and compassion for everybody, but they just fundamentally believed in everyone's rights, everyone's fundamental human rights. It's kind of socialist, you know, for people to get angry. <laughs> yeah, there's about a Buddhist the teacher socialist. I'm thinking of. Well, I'm not gonna name, but he, he doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't believe in human rights. Not that he doesn't believe yeah. people should be happy. He just yeah. kind of like questions this idea of human rights. Yeah, like as a thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know. Yeah, we won't <laughs> go there. I'm just. I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave that. There. But yeah, I really, I really, I really like that, and it, it's just to be able to look at everyone that way, even your, even your enemies. You can still, you can, they can still be your enemies. There's no problem. Yeah. But it's just understanding that they are trying to be happy. Um, they're acting probably from a very misguided view of what will make them happy. You know that that harming others will make them happy. Um, and then you look at them and they aren't actually happy. Yeah, so, yeah. so it's kind of proof, proof in point. Well, they just have faulty, faulty logic of ethics and the mind. Yeah. But, but one thing you're kind of like, that's, that's a little bit implicit in what you're saying too, is I think, um, you know, a recognition between like subject, cause we can go back to this kind of subjective objective dynamic or, or paradox, uh, which is, I find that to be a problem of like, an idea or belief or uh, like ethic or whatever we want to say um, being objective and not having been brought into the subjective. Like you gave this example, like so many of us have so many like, you know, opinions about the world and politics and social issues and blah, blah, blah. And yet we don't know how to be kind to our own family, you know? Yeah. And so it's like, you know what I mean? It's like, like th- for me, 
I, I'm talking about me here. Like, you know, I, I struggle in my intimate relationships. They're not easy all the time. And and I'm just really realizing this is where it's at. Like this is yeah. it's not out there in like, you know, su- supposedly like, you know, doing major world transformations. I'm trying to transform myself and, and then relate to my immediate environment with more benevolence. You know? Yeah, I agree with that. Like the 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 most difficult is in the this intimate sphere with the relation, you know, your your intimate relationships and a lot of people. I think this is this is where the the secular Buddhism and people like you know non lay practitioners, what you'd say, yeah. um, that is the biggest challenge because so much of like the conflict and desire and and anger of almost everything else in the world honestly has very much diminished for me over the years. Mm. But, and it really works, Buddhism. But the intimate relationship is really, really tricky because the person's always there. You know, you're, you're always together. And somehow we choose each other. You know, we, we, you can't stop, help but show your delusions and see, you know, your partner's delusions. And um, there are, you know, quote, simple techniques for dealing with that one uh, Richard Prince a great you know senior practitioner in our uh, in our kind of realm of, of of dharma friends he says mindfulness and compassion like as something mm-hmm. is happening apply mindfulness so that you're not so it doesn't immediately take over your mind you know so just okay what is going on i'm feeling a part of my mind is feeling uh criticized anger angry whatever and then compassion, like, so, 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 so live with it, you know, live with that through mindfulness, accept that it's there. Don't let it take over your mind. You know, you stop it at what's called the mental factor of feeling, which mm-hmm. is just that you can recognize that there's a negativity or a positivity to what's going on in your mind. And then compassion, like, whoa, what's the most compassionate thing I can do in this situation? Um, and you know, sometimes you need to slow down and be like, okay, let me, <laughs> let me go think for about an hour <laughs> about what to do. But, um, I love that formula. I'm not always able to apply it, but it's, I think it's very skillful and, and quite simple, actually it's yeah. a, a, a simple explanation of how to live your life, <laughs> how to live ethically. But yeah, it's very, it's very difficult because there's so much attachment in relationships. Like what yeah. is, what is, why are you in a relationship? What what got you into the relationship? And a lot of the times it's attachment. It's what Renee, when I was, I got divorced. I was, I was married once before. Mm-hmm. And um, I asked Renee kind of about relationships, you know, as that was happening. Um, you know, so I said, you know, if I get into another relationship, like what's, what's your advice? And he said, well, you should have a common, a common purpose with your partner. You know, he said, you really want to have some common purpose in life. I think we rarely hear that about relationships. Most relationship advice is actually how to get something, like how to get the perfect partner that you like, the whole list of qualities that, that, you know, you require from your partner and go find that person and um, get in a relationship with them. But I really liked Renee's, uh, where he said, you know, find a common purpose with your life. And, and to a big extent, my wife and I do that. We, we do have so much in common in terms of what we think the purpose of life is. Mm. Um, and that really does keep us, I, I think, keeps us bound together. We've known each other for 22 years. We've been together for um, since 2017, so whatever, 15 years. And, you know, we fight, we have our arguments, but, but we really work at it and um, use all kinds of techniques like Buddhist and non-Buddhist, there's all kinds of great frameworks now. Scientists have studied relationships and have a lot of good advice on like 
how to treat each other um, in a way that keeps bringing you closer rather than further away. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I mean, there's, there's a lot to say here, but, but beautiful. I, I love how you're approaching it. And yeah, for me, it's like, I mean, again, when it's, when it's, when we're working with our subjective experience in relationship, which is always there, it's sort of like who wouldn't, who wouldn't be our main practice, but our intimate, you yeah. know, close ones and family and, and work and stuff like that. But, um, you know, there's this other element of, um, uh, I was just going to say something briefly, uh, uh, of like choice, you know, cause I think you brought this up a little bit where a lot of us, we don't, we don't choose with kind of like our more clear thinking mind. We choose via our delusion. You know, we choose yeah. out of attachment or we, I mean, some people don't have choice who they marry. That's a whole nother issue, right? Um, probably like an older issue in human society. Yeah. It's it's less prevalent now. But let's just assume we we, we choose. We usually choose out of attachment. And, and you know, one yeah. thing I've thought about with partners often is like, it's I'm kind of choosing more or less kind of a guru, you know, not necessarily yeah. like they're explicitly my guru yeah. or spiritual teacher, but it's like they're 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 the mirror for me every day to look at my mind and see how you know where i'm being deplorable and where i'm where i can where i can grow and and where i where i'm where i thrive and and how to you know work those both of those out but um yeah i kind of look at that you know probably we should wrap up soon so if it's okay Mm -hmm. i I wanted to kind of go go back to this if if you had any kind of remaining thoughts or or things to share on on healthy skepticism in our approach mm. to the Buddhist path, we shared a lot about <clears> it, <throat> but I think you know that being the theme of our of our conversation, um, there's so much to say. Obviously, we could probably have like ten of these episodes easily and go through yeah. kind of how we both approach yeah. that. So we're just sharing, you know, just for those of you listening, Scott and I are just sharing little, you know, a little bit about it. But anything you want to say, anything you know, you forgot to say or I didn't ask, or healthy skepticism um, in relation to the path, in relation to the practice of, of the path, you know, anything. Yeah. Well, you know, I think, I think the things that people tend to be skeptical about are the ones that aren't part of our, our worldview, like past and future lives, other realms, including Mm -hmm. like hells and heaven type realms and um, karma, the idea that everything you do plants a seed that then has to ripen in some, in some way in the future and including, you know, mostly in future lives. Those are the things that are really hard and they're really embedded in, at least our form of Buddhism, they're very deeply embedded in like the very first topics you study. It's 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 quite difficult. The the precious life, you know, the first topic in one version of the Lam Rim, um, it, it starts with all those three things in the first sentence. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, I think the skepticism. It's everything is about this middle way. You know, in our in our tradition, they use this phrase the middle way a lot, and I think. Um, it's very reasonable to be skeptical. It would be worse to just accept them blindly mm-hmm. because then what are you, what are you doing? What, how do you decide to accept things blindly? Like some people blindly believe that if you fly a plane into a building, you know, you're going to go to heaven. So it's quite not difficult. Not just heaven, you're going to have 40 versions. Yeah, yeah, let's not, yeah. not go there, yeah. Um, <laughs> but so it's quite reasonable to be skeptical about blind belief and um, I think those things are very, it's very reasonable to set them aside for years or maybe even your whole life, you know, with Buddhism, because there are, there are 
some arguments and, and logic and, and directly and things you can do directly in experience and meditation to probe those questions, honestly. Mm-hmm. And I think they're very fun. So I think that skepticism is not cynicism. So cynicism is when you outright reject something. You kind of reject everything. So it's quite difficult to work with cynics <laughs> because they kind of they say no to everything before you even know what it is. So yeah. skepticism, I call it rational skepticism, where um, you're critical yet open. So you're open to really any idea, um, but you test it. You test it with logic. You test it with experiments. I think the thing in Buddhism is that you also test things through meditation and through direct experience. So that's where, that's where you have to decide if that's a valid way to test things for you. You know, the Buddha, the Buddhism is the only religion I know where the founder said, don't, don't trust everything I say. He said, test everything for yourself. And so you really are invited to that. But the way to test it is subjective is that, and it also could take a long time. Like you're not going to sit down once and meditate on cause and effect and all of a sudden understand how, the, the what's behind every person's actions on the planet, <laughs> yeah. right? It take, no. a, it, is, it take a long time. So I think that's so that's one one aspect of skepticism is totally reasonable to be skeptical about the the kind of currently unprovable aspects of Buddhism, unprovable with science. But what I'm hearing, um, sorry, Scott, yeah. just to just yeah, go on. for the audience, what I'm hearing you say is that it's not skepticism doesn't mean not believing it. It means yeah. take not taking it on face value and actually doing the yeah. work subjectively to reflect again you know again like how i put this sometimes just to you know talk a little bit is is you know i'm kind of like um i'm putting a mirror in front of my own belief and the mirror is maybe the buddhist belief right and then i'm checking both you know so it's kind of like that's how i think of subjectivity is sort of like it's it's a it's a you know uh, a tennis match with our own you know with our own thoughts yeah. and beliefs right which I find I found so beneficial because it 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 wears away at my own my own um, rigidity and again I'm not saying it wears it away and then I can be the best Buddhist ever no it wears away both actually essentially you know at some yeah point. yeah and then and then the other side too you know because when I asked Robert Thurman about skepticism yeah. he always says be skeptical of science which is actually quite reasonable too because scientists are skeptical of science and it yeah. doesn't mean that you are a climate denier or that you deny the theory of evolution or something like that there's extraordinary amount of evidence and if you go look at that yourself like mm-hmm. those things are true <laughs> or you know true to the great the propensity of 99.9999999% probable you know if you want to if you want to um, stick with probabilities sure um, but yeah, I think it's also to be skeptical because how many times do we hear these contradictory results? You know, science is quite young and things keep getting um, contradicted. You know, relativity was this theory that was so amazing and then it got it got contradicted almost immediately by quantum mechanics and no one has resolved that contradiction yet. No one could figure out how these two theories interact. That's the, it's mm-hmm. been a hundred years, you know, and science is still trying to figure out how these two most extraordinary physical theories ever devised in, in humanity um, uh, don't con- they contradict each other? So how the how the heck do you integrate them? So like those are the two things. Is like it's reasonable to be skeptical, um, but skepticism, you know, the, the the kind of nice form of skepticism we're talking about is is an open one, 
where you go in and explore like directly with your con and even ideas like past and future lives, you know, with skeptics path, I started out like very, very purely secular, but I did these episodes later um, where we actually do the meditation, trying to figure out what happened before you were born, mm. but without any certainty, without some, without a Lama saying, you know, you were in the Bardo and then you were whatever, <laughs> but actually just going with curiosity, like doing yeah. that meditation. So we have a meditation called the continuity of consciousness, where you go, you think about where you were yesterday and the day before, the week, the month, the year, is a really powerful meditation. And you don't have to believe in anything to do this. You can trace your whole life backwards. And then you go back into your mom <laughs> and then you shrink down. And then you just ask with curiosity. This version of it is a little different you know, than the Buddhist version because then you just ask, you get to that moment of um, maybe your first awareness where you first... Um, had some sense of consciousness and just curious where, when, when, what, use your imagination. When was that? Where was that? What happened? And then, you know, when the sperm and egg going backward in time, the sperm and egg go apart, you know, from mm -hmm. where they, and then what was I before? And just ask that question. It's a really good question to ask without, without, and there's no way there, we can find an answer, right? Like realistically, there's basically no way none, any of us will know for sure. Yeah, the furthest, I, to, I mean, I do yeah. that practice a lot. The furthest yeah. I've gotten is an inference. I mean, there's just an yeah. inference. That's all, that's a, you know, that's the furthest yeah. you can get. Yeah. But to do, so in a slightly, you know, secular way to just, op just ask that question openly. Yeah. Like see what your, where your imagination goes and go to a different place day to day. And the thing is, the thing that Buddhism says is just that practice of doing that is very, very beneficial for your mind. You'd mm. never have to find an answer, but asking the question, instead of just living blindly, kind of not, not even asking the question, asking that question curiously and being open to, to not knowing, like that wonder of how my, because even the, the idea that you kind of, your consciousness started up from nothing, it's pretty hard to understand or figure out. Um, but, but if you really, really believe that, that is pretty extraordinary and miraculous too, you know, even just to sit, yeah, that it with would that come and think, nothing, how did yeah. my how did my awareness emerge from? If that's what you decide, <laughs> whatever, great. But spend a lot of time with it and see how see how that feels and how it makes you think about your life. And um, yeah, I like that. And and you know, as you know, in the in the in the Madhyamaka or Middle Way tradition of, of Buddhist reasoning and logic and all that, you know, you, you also have to have some rational rationale for why yeah. then. It would be, you know, that's what I find the important piece. If yeah. we're doing this on a thought basis, kind of a thought exercise or meditation, analytical meditation, there has to be that piece where it's like, okay, well then, then what would, why, or how would be the mechanism that something came from nothing? You know, exactly. And, yeah. So, so I find that to be the richest part. Cause you, like you said, we're going through, you know, I mean, I think what we're really, I mean, the whole essence of our conversation is curiosity itself and the questions itself and the exploration itself is the path. Like that is yeah. the, that is the benefit of a lot of what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. So I think it's, there's a lot of, you know, dismissal in our, in our culture right now, just dismissing things before you even know what they are. And it's, it's nice to, you can be open and still be effective and strong and, and have strong opinions and defend people and, fight for justice and all of that like they aren't they aren't incompatible you can be like very no. open and very compassionate and still really effective in life i think yeah i totally agree yeah yeah and my my prayers are that uh you know we can find that more and more yeah. in, in our societies because it's becoming 
More and more. You know, I, I mean, this is a whole this is another episode. I mean, it's sort of like, is it entrenched or is that just on social media and and in the media? You know, in general, it's it's hard to really. Sometimes it's hard to figure out what is the reality. Like, because when I meet people and you talk to them one on one, they're people are still pretty open. I mean, I mean, maybe it's just the people who I meet. And of course they have some rigid beliefs and so do yeah. I and all of that. But, um, but man, like, like, like Facebook these days is, it's rough, you know, you put, you know, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to have dialogue, a healthy dialogue on there. In my yeah. Opinion. Yeah. And part of it is just the way those platforms are designed. They're, yeah. they're polarizing. They tend to encourage polarization because it's hard to see the, the humanity of the people you're interacting with. Um, yeah, I viewed it as like, I, I started to think of Facebook as a, uh, and, and I use Facebook, but I, I started to think of it as like, I guess this kind of relates to something you said earlier too, is like when we, when we understand the other, when we, when we seek to understand the other person, not that we can understand them fully, but we empathize and we seek to know them and their, their perspectives and why they feel the way they do. Um, I think it's similar with these, you know, I treat Facebook like that. So I was doing a little bit of an exercise of, uh, well, what is Facebook? I was like, oh, Facebook is like going in the middle of a city and just like, like holding your sign. And as soon as I started to think of it like that, I, you know, because I left Facebook and I just recently yeah. came back yeah. and, uh, you know, I left for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons was that, you know, I didn't have that understanding before that it's, you know, I just I thought. You know, somehow in my mind, I got confused. And now, not saying I'm correct now, but it feels more healthy because I can just be like, oh, yeah, like, of course, someone's going to like, you know, shit on me in the comments because I'm holding a sign in the middle of the street. And in the middle yeah. of the city, there's all kinds of people walking. Some people don't yeah. care about, you know, you, you or my ideas at all. Some people hate my ideas. Some people like them. So... It's kind of a, sorry, kind of getting on a tangent, but <laughs> it's just a thought coming out of kind of even skepticism or healthy skepticism applied to sort of how we relate with these different things in our life. And like, I love that you that you brought that up, that sense of um, we have to seek to understand something because then we can actually use it more skillfully. And in my case, yeah. I don't know if I'm correct, but it definitely makes me more relaxed when I'm using it. And then I don't, I'm not surprised yeah. when someone post the poop meme on my you know comments i'm like okay yeah of course like for for them my my thing was poop great no yeah. problem <laughs> no, anyway very rough it's very rough social media someone wouldn't someone wouldn't actually do that in real life to you you know if they that's what face. i mean yeah i, I actually yeah. got into a i got into i got into it in the comments which is like the worst thing you could do because i was trying to have a rational conversation with someone who, who i think misunderstood something i had i had put and i was just trying to open up a conversation and it, it did not go it's like I, every time i do that i'm like i I conclude by saying, I'm never going to do that ever again. And yet I do it again. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's this phrase, um, the medium is the message. This, um, what's his name? The, the theory is this media theorist from the 60s. Um, his name escapes me right now, like McLaren. Mm -hmm. um, but what he says is that the, the medium that you communicate with tends to dominate um, the discourse. Mm. That that each medium has a certain a certain kind of bias and and power to it, and um, <clears throat> you know, television is a great example as a as a one way delivery medium funded by advertising. You know, it's tend to be quite sort of overwhelmingly 
hypnotic and manipulative and um, social media tends to be divisive because it, it strips away all of the, uh, what people rely on for communication are the secondary um, characteristic, the, the secondary communication signals. Um, yes. uh, I think it's something like 90% of people, like it's very, very critical to see them and, and we look in your eyes and your face, like looking moment by moment, how you're reacting, that the nonverbal aspect of communication is actually the most important one yeah. uh, for almost for almost everybody. It's different for, but there's a small percentage of people for whom um, those don't matter. Some people who are autistic, actually yeah. like my sister's autistic, yeah. but some people who are autistic, you know, they don't pick up on those clues. <clears throat> and it doesn't mean you're like evil or something actually, but, um, but no, I think the brain, that's the, the brain that, just, it can't, it, it can't, there's something in the yeah, brain you can't pick up on. Yeah, yeah. like there's very compassionate people actually still who, who don't pick up on those Cues. But in general, most of us are very sensitive to those um, nonverbal cues, and we don't get any of those in social media. That's what emojis are for. They actually help a little bit. But we don't get those nonverbal cues. So without nonverbal cues, we tend to um, regress to a more primitive brain, and, and, and things more quickly seem like a threat because we're not getting... You need active nonverbal cues that a person is not a threat. Like in Japanese, it's even more. I study Japanese, you know, and there's this thing called aizuchi, which is um, active listening. So you have to keep saying like, yes, 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 yes. Hi, hi, hi in Japanese. Maybe I'm Japanese because I keep, <laughs> maybe I learned yeah. that. <laughs> I, I, keep, I always do that, yeah. <laughs> yes, it's called active listening. And to, to one extent or another, most of us humans are looking for something like that um, yeah. in order to know that a person's not a threat and that we're connecting with them. And so on social media, we just don't, get those except for emojis. So it's actually, yeah. again, it's nobody's fault. It's actually the medium's fault. Um, and it was designed by a person who actually lacked, you know, I used to work with Mark Zuckerberg. It's designed yeah. by a person who doesn't perceive those. Like he is a person who doesn't perceive those nonverbal cues. So he was, um, so he designed a system. Interesting. You know, primarily, primarily like that. But for people who do care about nonverbal cues, um, it tends to, it can bring out the worst them. <laughs> yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, so so yeah, just as we're wrapping up here, any 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 kind of final thoughts on on this? Uh, um, not on social media, but on kind of like healthy skepticism. Anything you healthy want to share? You should, if you know, if you want to share more about the course, I know you shared about it before. Oh yeah, right. To, yeah. yeah, well, we're starting our first. We're starting our first course. So I've been trying to adapt this path. You know, we talked about the importance of a complete path. So I tried to adapt the path that. Um, we learned called the Lam Rim, which is like a thousand year old path of organizing the Buddha's teaching into um, who, who knows how many, you can break it down to eight or 21 steps. It kind of depends how you break it down, but I've broken it down into about eight or nine steps uh, in a secular form. So that course starts on March 5th, if anyone's made it this long in the video <laughs> to hear. <laughs> um, so come and, come and join us. Um, there's a fee for the course, but it's also free to anybody um, who can't afford it for any reason. So you just, just ask and, and you can take the class for free, which is important. Awesome. But um, it's been really, been, you know, I've been going through the sequence for about 10 years with different people in different places and um, they work, they, these techniques, I think they really work. Yeah. Uh, most of them work in a secular, in a secular form. And there's, there's something to be said for going 80% there. Cause if you go look at like mindfulness or something like that, it's a, it's a small percentage, a very small percentage of the Buddhist path. And yet it still yeah. has such a huge benefit. So this is trying to go like the step further for people who've tried mindfulness or compassion to see what it's like to have a complete path, but still not to require any belief 
like to base it yeah. in logic. And you do have to dispense with certain, <laughs> certain important aspects of Buddhist philosophy, like past and future lives. But, but it's, it's a big step um, towards the complete Buddhist path for, for someone that's curious about it, but um, non-religious. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is, is even some of those topics, like you, you, you brought a karma a little bit is, um, you know, some of these topics, I mean, they're introduced, but I don't, I don't know if even, you know, within the Tibetan system, they're, they're meant to be understood right away because, you know, it's sort of like, um, it wasn't like, I'm not saying I understand karma, no way, but I have more understanding than I did about it, you know, than, than when I first started 23 years ago. And I would say one of the reasons for that is not only just kind of studying the path as a whole and practicing, but also um, like like for me, studies on on, on the middle way, on the Maniamukha view of, of really going deep into theory and analytical meditation and emptiness. That actually helped me to understand karma a little bit better. Mm-hmm. But, you know, typically we, we go into studies on emptiness later because those are more advanced teachings. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, that's what I find is like, I, I think when we approach this sometimes in a linear way, it, it runs into these issues, you know, that you're describing. So it's wonderful you're, you're exploring mm-hmm. it in different ways for people because I think reorganizing it, I, you know, that doesn't necessarily, it's not cherry picking, in my opinion. And it doesn't also, um, it doesn't take the heart out of it. It just restructures yeah. it. Like the Dalai Lama has been talking about that with Lamarim too, kind of structuring yeah, it in a different yeah. way. Oh, and there already are. I mean, there's different Lamarims in different order. I mostly go by the the kind of Tibetan or, or like easy path yeah. order. Um, but it, it takes some discipline because I think you like to fast forward. I, when I first started teaching meditation, my the, the, the nun that I was a spiritual program coordinator I worked cl- most closely with, she teased me because she, she said I was meditating on love too much. You know, she's like, you have to do all the topics. You have to meditate on suffering. And it's really true that you really do need to do all the topics um, because there's not, you can be very loving. Like love comes very easy for me. Compassion Mm -hmm. is a little more, a lot harder. Mm -hmm. Um, But like to combine them all together, like you really see, like with too much love, it's sort of like denial a little bit that you just, it's like rose colored glasses that you want to accept the suffering and the, how destructive delusions are and and so on they all these all these pieces really need to work together it's very beautiful very yeah. elaborate and very beneficial you know for anyone who's interested well thanks thanks so much for offering that out there scott i mean you know i'm, I'm a big supporter of what you do obviously because you're on you're here you know, we're talking for an hour and a half um and so just just i wish i wish the course and and you know just all you do in in your teaching and skeptics path to enlightenment uh you know well and and um yeah, just to wrap up, just really you know, just to hear, but thanks so much for, for coming on. It's just like we got to, you know, chat and meander and yeah, I just love the way you think. So, so thank you for sharing. Oh, likewise, Scott. It's really nice talking to you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I hope we can do this again. <laughs> oh, let's definitely. Yeah. I think we even had, we had some specific topic for the next one. So <laughs> later. We could, let's do it. I'm down. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. All right, thanks. Thanks, everyone, for joining us.